closer to that day. But the emphasis of this passage, besides of our coming together and encouraging one another, is on the great high priest. And that is Jesus. This morning, we're going to see what Jesus has done for the one who has placed his or her faith in, in Jesus. And see the great work that God has done. And so as we come now, let's pray. And our hearts, as I pray aloud, thank God for the redemption that he has given us, the salvation and for the precious blood of Christ. Let's bow to pray. Gracious God, I thank you for who you are, the power of your love, of your mercy. But God, I cannot understand such a love. I don't understand how you would love me and my unworthiness, but yet you did. As John writes, you loved the whole world. And as the writers of the New Testament unfolds, you came, Jesus, to die upon the cross to make that perfect sacrifice so that we who place our faith and trust in the grace of God, we might have freedom from sin. And so, God, I thank you so much for the power of your word. We praise you that we can come, we can sing together, but Father, most of all, that we have a dear Redeemer in whom we can trust. We thank you and praise you for our time today. And Lord, I pray for those who are about the world and our country, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we think of the church that we support in Brazil, in Hippodal Preto. Lord, I pray that you would be with Brother Rom this morning as he preaches, for Carl and for the families, for Rachel, for all those that are there. I pray that you would do a work in that body as they grow, as souls are coming to Christ. Would you strengthen them? Would you strengthen them in the work of building a place for them to meet? That you would continue to provide the funds for that. But Father, I pray that you would do a work in hearts and souls today. Fill it by your Holy Spirit, even as you fill here. And we see you work in our hearts. And may you be glorified. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And if you'll come, we'll worship my giving. And as we come and worship, I'll ask Dan Lindsay to pray and ask God's blessing as we worship God today.
Thank you, Fiona and Vicky. And let's continue to meditate and think about his love as we sing hymn number 108, The Love of God. Remain seated and followed by Mercy Tree. Our Savior chose 
heavy load down at the master's feet your shame will be removed your joy will be complete come crucify your pride and enter as a child for those who bow down low he'll lift up to his side what joy what peace has come to us what hope what hope what love what joy what peace has come to us what hope what hope what Indeed, the story of redemption is of hope and of love. Hope for us, love of our dear Savior, what he has shed for us. Thank you, Tara and Vicki, reminding us of that. We're continuing our series, The Joy of Knowing. The Joy of Knowing. And as we have looked in this series, we're studying a letter written by John the Apostle. And as he has written to us so far, we have seen that In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, we saw the joy of fellowship, fellowship both with God and with those who know God. Verses 5 through 7, we have the joy of knowing and living in the light, the joy of knowing the light and the joy of living in and out the light. Verses 8 through 10, we learn the joy of knowing sin forgiven. What a glorious joy that is. Let's begin this morning in chapter 2. John, the apostle, is not quite finished with this thought regarding sin. So he deals with that once more. And so would you follow along in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as I read, please. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with a father Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's bow in prayer and ask God's help to understand His Word today. Gracious God, by Your might and by Your power, we come to You, knowing that in and of ourselves we have no good thing. We cannot hope to understand your word except by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray this morning, Father, my words are feeble, they're frail, but your word is eternal, it's forever settled in heaven, and it's powerful and true and mighty in our hearts. And so would you burrow down your word into our hearts that it may change us. May we hear it, may we understand by the power of the Holy Spirit, and may we walk away changed by the grace of and glory that only comes from you. So would you meet with us now? May your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. May we listen to you today. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. In the 1950s, uh, two psychologists, um, one by the name of Stanton Samenow and the other uh, Samuel Yockelson, um, they shared the conventional wisdom that uh, crime was because of a couple of factors. They thought it was mainly because of environment. A criminal grew up to be a criminal because of the environment in which he found or she found themselves. And so they set out to prove this point. They began a 17-year study, many, many different clinical hours speaking to inmates in the District of Columbia. And to their astonishment, they could not trace the cause of crime to environment, 
They couldn't trace it to poverty or oppression. And instead, crime, they found, was the, the result of individuals making choices, wrong moral choices. And in their 1977 work, The Criminal Personality, they concluded that the answer to crime is a conversion of the wrongdoer to a more responsible lifestyle. And so in 1987, the Harvard professors James Q. Wilson and uh, Richard Hernstein came to a similar conclusion in their book, Crime and Human Nature. They determined that the cause of crime is a lack of proper moral training among young people during the morally formative years, those years being between the age of one to the age of six. Reading the results of the study causes me to confront the sin within my own heart. No, I have not robbed a convenience store and beaten up the clerk of the store. And you think, oh, that's horrible. But my sin is just as dark, or my heart is just as dark with sin as anyone who may have done something overtly I've been imprisoned by it. In response to a newspaper editorial entitled, What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton famously responded, I am. And so we have, if we're honest, we echo with Chesterton, I am. I echo with David in sin that my mother conceived me. And if you're honest with yourself, you will admit that also. You and I are prone to sin. Our heart runs after it. It runs after it without excuse. And sometimes we are tempted to say, what's the use? I can't fight this. I'll just give up. And then in those times we go into sort of a despair that says, it doesn't matter. I will never be worthy of forgiveness. Notice the wrong thought there. I will never be worthy of the forgiveness, so I just might as well keep on my course because I'll never change. Despair sits in. We give up all hope of trying. And even we who know the salvation of Christ, we are tempted to doubt His love and to doubt His forgiveness and to doubt that we, by His grace, can overcome sin. We think, what are we to do? What are we to do? And in the blackness of our heart, John the Apostle, as he has written the eyewitness brings us these words at the beginning of the second chapter, that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides for us victory over sin and cleansing from the Father. Forgiveness by the Father. What John is saying is that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our advocate, and because He is so, we must depend upon Him in our battle against sin. And depend upon Him for the forgiveness of our sin. Let's see what He has to say and impact God's Word together. My little children, He says in verse 1, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. Number one. Number one, very simply, don't sin. See, you are waiting for something really profound, and it is. Don't sin. He says, and notice what he writes here, okay? He writes, my little children. He doesn't say, okay, you're a bunch of reprobates. The terms of endearment, and he, and look, he, he was earlier, we, the eyewitnesses now, he says, I am writing the personal heart of John the Apostle, the one that loved Jesus with all of his heart, is writing to those he indeed loves here, these churches. He says, don't sin. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. Now, he's already talked about this. Verse 6, yes. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay? It's the, the pretending. He continues, verse 8, we've already seen this. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Remember the self-deception we talked about? We're only deceiving ourselves. Everybody else knows us and they, yeah, they cue into it pretty quickly. We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 of chapter 1 again. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. 
If we say that we don't have any sin in our lives or we're not even capable of sin, we're lying. Truth is not, we're not doing the truth. We're not practicing the truth at all. And so, so John's not letting up on this. John is not patting us on the head and saying, being good. John is saying and writing to us that the standard for God, His holiness, is that we should not sin. We should not sin. And that is so important for us to know this, that we should not sin. You and I can't sin with impunity. Ever thought about that? Impunity, big word, I know. It's the exemption from punishment. You and I cannot sin and not receive the punishment. Oh, it may not come right away. It may not come tomorrow. It may not come a week from now. It may not come until we stand and give an account of our lives before God. But we can't sin without impunity. John's right, and sometimes we think we can't. The self-deception part, and sometimes we think we can avoid it. I can get by with it. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. You cannot do that. And there's the lie. Here's the lie also given to us. Um, we've been told by some, you know, this is all legalism. You talk about sin, not sinning, that's legalism. Uh, you know, all of our things, all of our sins are under the blood. It doesn't matter what you do in the body. That's what they were saying in John's time. It doesn't matter what you do in the body, your spirit, it's still wonderful, and God overlooks it all. And John says no. John says no. By the power of the Holy Spirit, John says no. It is... It's almost as if we mean somehow Christ died on the cross to give us freedom to live any way that we want to and to sin with impunity, without punishment. Is that why Christ died? And John would say, no. No. That is not why Christ died. Christ did not die so that you and I would sin without punishment. Christ's death does forgive us from sin. It does redeem us. He totally forgives it. But when you enter, when I enter in the union with Christ, when we come to Him and realize that we cannot save ourselves, and it's only His grace that will save us, and so we place our faith and trust in Him and His grace to redeem us, we are now in union with Christ to live in such a way that is holy before Him and with and through His power. We have salvation. And he's writing so that we may not sin. He says, remember that union. Remember what Christ has done. Remember the previous chapter. The blood of Christ Jesus cleanses, forgives and cleanses us from all sin. So the standard here is for us not to sin. Simply, for all the reasons he listed, don't sin. But John does understand that perfectionism is not attained here in this life. And so he continues in verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So if number one is don't sin, number two is when you sin, go to Jesus, your advocate. Go to Jesus, your advocate. The word there, if anyone sins, back to our, our verse here, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. Well, an advocate is one who comes alongside. One who comes alongside and gives, gives aid. It's a, a Greek, Greek word, that, uh, the paraclete that we've seen before. Uh, we think of, of John 14, John 14, 16. And Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, word advocate, a paraclete, that he may be with you forever, speaking he of the Holy Spirit. But notice what Jesus says, I will give you another. Meaning Jesus is the first and the continuing advocate for us. And so when John writes, again in the epistle here, he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. He is one that comes alongside to help and stands. And that person, that advocate Jesus is advocating for us with the Father. Understand how, how the Scripture has set this up for us to understand. As God the Father, the righteous judge, God the Son, the advocate for us, the one who has bled and died for us, 
He is the advocate. But see, the Father in His righteousness must judge sin. A concept we don't like to think about in the New Testament and the Old Testament is the wrath of God. Say, well, I want God to be a loving God that forgives all things, but God is angry at sin, we are told. God is angry at sin, which should tell us how He thinks about our sin. He is angry at sin, and that's why we must have an advocate who comes alongside. And so Jesus comes alongside for us as an advocate to the believer to help and to represent the believer before the Father. But notice the work. Doesn't John pack so much in this verse here, these two verses. So the name of the advocate is Jesus. And notice what he says. Jesus Christ the righteous. Back up to verse, uh, verse 1 here. Uh, Jesus Christ the right, Jesus, Hoshiana, the one who saves. Christ the Messiah, signifying the Messiah is of God, this Messiah is God, this one here. And look at the character of this one. He is righteous. The character of this one, Jesus, who is fully, fully licensed, we'll put it in that word, to stand before the Father, is the righteous, just one. Remember the previous verses, He is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. So here he he is, this one who comes alongside. And and John writes, and he, Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins. Notice the word himself. Jesus didn't give this to someone. He didn't, in our vernacular, farm it out. He didn't give it to someone. He himself is a propitiation for our sins. Now, let's start here. What is propitiation? Well, let's think about this a little bit. 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus himself for Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous, me, you, the whole world. And this idea of propitiation is the satisfaction of the righteous demands of God the Father in relation to human sin the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. What is that? Um, propitiation, in a short word, has a lot of things packed into it. Some call it expiation. Of, and I'm not going to go down that road too much. But understand the, the satisfaction. So our sin debt. Our sin debt. We could not satisfy ourselves. And Jesus comes alongside and satisfies the righteous demands of God the Father. He satisfies it. How? The last phrase there. The last phrase through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. There was no other way for my sin debt and your sin debt to be satisfied. I couldn't go enough church services. I couldn't sing enough songs. couldn't pray enough prayers. I couldn't give enough money. And you couldn't either. No matter what we did, we could not meet the righteous demands of God the Father. Our sin was too great. Any sin is too great. Jesus met every demand upon the cross. He meets that demand. He removes the guilt of our sin by the offering of Himself upon the cross. He stands in our place on that. So he says he's the propitiation. He satisfies the righteous demands. He said, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Understand, understand the reason that Christ went to the cross. Now for somebody else's sin. Yes, but we must personalize it. And John is saying, yours and mine. Our sins. This is why Jesus went. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world, the whole world. And with these words, John describes the propitiation, the satisfaction of God that is wide enough to satisfy the whole sin of the whole world. God's propitiation, Christ's propitiation is not limited, is not ineffective, um, it, it is weak. And what John is not saying, John is not saying that all will be saved. 
John is not giving some universalism that everybody will be saved. It's because Christ died, we're all good. But what John is saying is, is that Jesus satisfies his, sin de- his, his payment for sin is strong enough to satisfy. What John is not also saying, John is not also saying, uh, contrary to, to Augustine and John Calvin, he's not saying that, that this means only the elect in mind. John is not saying, well, the only the elect, the sins of the whole world, the elect. And this wonderful mystery of salvation that God, his, God the Son died and His salvation is powerful enough to save the sin of the whole world. It was intended that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The sad fact is not all will call upon the Lord. Not all will come. Another theological word is efficacious. It's capable of producing the desired result of of saving, but it is for those who believe, those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The whole world, if they would but look to Jesus, would receive Christ's satisfaction on their behalf. I love the way Edmund Hebert says, no one by divine determination is excluded from the scope of God's mercy. No one is excluded. God sees all of this. He didn't see just a few. His salvation is wide enough to cover the sins of the whole world. It's directly impacting those who come and place their faith in Jesus Christ. His, his atonement is not limited. It's open and free to those who come and place their faith in Jesus Christ. To illustrate this, we think back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, the high priest would come on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice. And leading up to it, I won't go through all the process, but he would cleanse himself. He would immerse himself in the ritual mikvah. He would wash his hands. He would put on clean garments, linen robes. He would have the, the breastplate that was specially for the high priest. And he would come clean, pure, offer a sacrifice for himself, and then on the day, for the Day of Atonement, offer a sacrifice for the people. And as he went that one time of the year, he would come before the Ark of the Covenant into the holy place, the holiest of holy places, and he would stand before, and he would place the blood, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, in between the two cherubim, he would sprinkle the blood, a sacrifice of an animal, on here, as we see this replica that from a, a trip in Israel, as we see this, it's clean. But never having been in the temple or the tabernacle, I could only imagine the blood that would have been from the years, every year of David Atonement, the blood. What an awesome, sobering sight when that high priest walked in. Understanding that an animal had been sacrificed for the sin of the whole world. Okay, for the people. And they were coming this one day. And then they had to come again the next, next day. Not the whole world, but for, for Israel. They would come again the next day. And he would see the blood from the previous year. I must do that again. And the people would hear the animal being killed. They would understand that animal sacrifice was for their sin. Think, why did God create for them such an awful thing? Because He wanted them to know the awfulness of their sin. But He also wanted them to know that with Jesus, one day looking ahead, that once for all, there would no more longer need to be a sprinkling of blood upon the mercy seat every year, but Jesus, by His blood shed upon the cross, We provide forgiveness of sin. And so we have. But the picture there, before we leave the the understanding. See, in the Old Testament, there was a high priest and there was a sacrifice. It was a lamb. But what we are told in the New Testament by the writers is that Jesus is both the high priest and he is the sacrifice. He is your sacrifice 
He is my sacrifice. And he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. What the glorious thing is we see through this is that Jesus, that God took the initiative. God took the initiative for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. And our advocate, the one who comes alongside, is not just the one who comes to help, but his help included his death for us. So where does this leave you? Where does this leave me? How are we to look at these verses and not come away unchanged? See, going back to the first chapter, the God that we see from scriptures, this God of light, God of holiness and of purity. And this one, in his holiness and purity, made a way for sinful, rebellious men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled with God the Father. To be placed in right relationship. So the impact of that, for those of us who know Christ, that impact should should both leave us in awe and leave us with an undying love. The awe of a great love of God and the love that we reciprocate toward Him. But it should also leave us with this thought that my sin, when I sin, is an affront to the Holy God, but is also an effect turning our back on the sacrifice. And if I could be even more crude on this, it is in fact spitting on the sacrifice of our Savior. When I choose to sin in my rebellious heart, I allow it to take control. John says, don't sin. Christ has made a way. Christ has made a way for you. He is that way. He is your advocate. And He forgives sin. What this tells us is that we, through our advocate, can fight against sin, battle against sin, by taking His power and His strength upon us, by dwelling upon His Word, by seeking Him day by day. It also tells us, because of our advocate, we have forgiveness of sin. And there's the rub for some of us. We sin... And our conscience pricks us. That's a good thing, by the way. Our conscience pricks us and we're reminded of our sin and the holiness of God. And we have two choices. Confess, to say the same thing as God about our sin. Or to turn our back on it and kind of say, oh, put our conscience off. Put off the Holy Spirit working in our heart, tapping on us. Put it off a little while. Confess or put it off. And there are sometimes we tell ourselves, you know, it's okay to continue sinning. On the other hand, sometimes we are such in despair because of our sin that we don't run to the very one who is the advocate for us. In our twisted thinking, we sometimes think, well, Jesus died for us. How can I come back to him again and ask for forgiveness? And we see this, that Jesus Christ, the advocate, offers forgiveness as we confess. As we repent and turn from our sin, just as we did in salvation, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we repent and turn from our sin, we confess it, and He he gives us cleansing. A new heart, a clean heart, that we might again serve Him. That we might again live for Christ. The passage tells us this morning, since Jesus is your advocate, depend upon Him, your battle against sin, and for forgiveness of our sin. Jesus, your advocate. And oh, the, no- the joy of knowing Jesus, the advocate. Oh, the, the joy of knowing this one who advocates for us, who loves us, who comes alongside 
to represent us before God the Father. And oh, the joy of fellowship that we have in God because of Jesus. And so, how will you live? How will I live when presented with this truth? John says, don't sin. But as you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, for forgiveness of sin. What a joy we have in knowing the advocate. Let's bow for prayer. I don't know where you are this morning. For many of you, you know Christ. You've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And so, sometimes, frankly, we are embarrassed with our response to sin. Um, We look at it and we think that Jesus thinks like us. And we say, I can't go back to him again. That's what we do when someone comes to us and apologizes for something they've done wrong to us and confesses it to us. We, you again? And unfortunately, we project that upon Jesus. And some, for some of us today, we have to understand the true nature of forgiveness with Christ. And we must not let the lie of Satan that Christ doesn't want to hear from us again Fool us, deceive us into not confessing and receiving forgiveness. Some of us are believers here today and we really don't care about sin. Um, It bothers us, yes, but uh, we've managed to, for the most part, kind of sideline it. Only raises his ugly head every once in a while. Then you want to think about it. And some of us, frankly, we, we chafe at the idea that, that God asked for us to be holy. We look at his sacrifice and we say, no, I want the good parts. I don't want the parts that says, I'm going to follow you. And for that, we must repent. If that's you this morning, either of those cases, would you fall on your face before God? Come and pray here at the altar in just a minute or in your seat. Don't let it pass. Maybe you're here without the saving knowledge of Jesus and you feel a tugging on your heart that says, I need to, I need to find out more about this one who, if this is true, would be willing to, to die for me. And no other religion of the world is the, the God of creation willing to die. It's always thrown back, and the other religions is thrown back on the worshiper to, to do enough and hear the remarkable thing that Jesus has died, and his, his death, his payment is, is strong enough to meet your sin. And you may say, you don't know my sin. Pretty bad. Oh no. It's more than enough to cover. You must come and believe. And if that's you this morning, I plead with you, I beg with you, Would you yield to Christ? Enter the joy of the relationship with Him that's not always easy. But it's the fellowship with God, the knowing of the Advocate, the knowing of the Father, the knowing of those who believe, the joy of community of believers. Oh God, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Would You work in hearts? And people respond to you and your word, not to me. May your great power root out those things in my heart that would keep me from full fellowship with you. Or that I might not be a hindrance to those around me. That those things that would hinder the fellowship, the pride, the selfishness of my heart, that would hinder fellowship with others, to make me think wrong things about them, to to assume motives that they don't have, all of these things, would you, would you work in our hearts? For the sin that we are tempted to follow after, would you, 
Would you give us by the power of the Holy Spirit the understanding that we do not have to sin? Would you by your grace and mercy forgive? And so may we rise from this place to live in such a way that brings glory to our great God who has given us all things. Freedom from sin. Life eternal. And the blessing indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By your grace and mercy, we pray in the name of our our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.